Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Well, you know, Lloyd, we have a very interesting guest. I love to read articles about privacy and issues in the workplace and surveillance and all that good stuff. And I was reading the Daily Journal a few weeks back, and I saw this article called Here's Looking at You. And it was about California employers and the issue of surveillance and and what restrictions there really are. And I thought our entire community would want to listen to this because we have students on campus who are going to be going to work in, um, they already are working or they're going to be working for employers. And then we have many employers driving by and listening and wanting to know what, what is the limit of privacy and what, what is the difference between privacy and security and what is the difference between privacy and the right to know what's going on and protect the, the business. So I wanted to invite the wonderful author, Anthony Onsidi, who is the uh, a partner in the law firm and the chair of the Labor and Employment Department with the uh, law firm of Preskauer Rose LLP. And he's in Los Angeles. Tony represents employers and management in all aspects of labor relations and employment law. But because he does this, he happens to know both sides. He has to know both sides, the employee side and the employer side. So he's going to talk about that with us. A substantial portion of Tony's practice involves the defense of employers in large class action suits and employment discrimination, harassment, and wrongful termination litigation. Now, this is both in the state courts and as well as the federal courts and in arbitrations. Tony is very well read and he's also an author. He is the author of the treatise entitled Employment Discrimination Depositions. And you can see that at www.jurispub.com. He's also the co-author of Proskauer on Privacy, which was published in uh, 2009. And it's all about privacy and let's see, he's been a regular columnist for the official publication of the Labor and Employment Law section of the State Bar of California. And of course, he writes for the Los Angeles Daily Journal as well, that article I saw. Tony also is a regular commentator on employment-related issues for public radio station KALWFM in San Francisco. And he's been a featured guest on Fox 11 and CBS News in Los Angeles. He's been interviewed and quoted by leading national media outlets such as the National Law Journal, Bloomberg News, the New York Times, CBS News, and New York Newsweek, and Time Magazine. So we're really lucky to have him. He has uh, made some time for us. You should know that he is also ranked as one of the nation's top 100 most powerful employment attorneys. This was by Human Resource Executive and one of the top 10 defense attorneys, defense employment attorneys in California. 
and five in the Los Angeles area. By, this is uh, by the Daily Journal, which is the legal newspaper for the state of California. Uh, I, without further ado, I want to tell you he's wonderful. We have a lot more about him on our website with his photo at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And of course, you can also visit the website to learn more about his firm at proskauer.com. That's spelled P-R-O-S-K-A-U-E-R.com. Tony, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mari. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, you are just a wealth of knowledge, and we really appreciate your coming on. Let's talk about privacy rights and employees right now. What what privacy rights do California employees actually have? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, employees in California, indeed citizens of the state of California, have uh, a number of rights that uh, some citizens of other states don't have. And, and the primary reason for that is uh, Article One, Section 1, of our constitution here in the state of California, which guarantees uh, all, all uh, Californians a right to privacy. So there's an express uh, written guaranteed right of privacy that all uh, citizens of the state of California have, and that isn't true in every state uh, or every jurisdiction throughout the United States. So it's, it's an interesting uh, uh, differentiation that we have in the law with respect to that. So it kind of starts there in California, but beyond that, um, we often say that there's a patchwork quilt of uh, areas in which uh, privacy is guaranteed. Not only does it flow from the California Constitution, for example, uh, but there are all kinds of uh, statutes, and we'll be talking about some of those statutes, uh, I think, during the program here today. Uh, there are also uh, regulations. There are decisions of courts that have uh, have guaranteed the rights of privacy. So. Uh, they, they they come from all kinds of different places and um, and uh, sources. So I think it's an interesting area of the law, one that uh, I, I very much uh, enjoy practicing in and uh, uh, like the opportunity to be able to talk about on programs such as yours. And, you know, it's constantly changing and developing because privacy and technology and security are just at the top of all issues right now with everything going on with all the new laws, whether we're talking about HIPAA or whether we're talking about the Fair Credit Reporting Act and red flag rules or whatever it is, privacy is out there. How about California employers? Um, what rights do California employers have with regard to data ex- access? Well, it's interesting because uh, it, it, this this goes to the heart of, uh, I think, where most of the action is uh, these days with respect to privacy rights and privacy litigation, certainly in connection with uh, employees. Uh, and that is that there is a tension between, on the one hand, uh, the right to privacy that employees uh, have uh, and that, indeed, citizens of the state of California have, uh, and, on the other hand, the uh, right and, indeed, in, in some instances, the obligation that an employer has to uh, safeguard uh, the uh, information that employees have access to or that they gain access to through technology. And you, you mentioned technology already. I think that really has ignited uh, this area because if you go back you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, before there was email, before there was widespread Internet, um, these issues, I think, were dormant uh, and they existed, but you didn't get, you didn't get the kind of uh, discussion as we, we now get. In those days, uh, privacy issues primarily had to do with things like drug testing, and we'll talk about that, I think, today. Uh, and uh, uh, those kinds of things, maybe uh, you know, a, a, a lie detector test or something. But it, it wasn't until uh, employees in the workplace had such widespread access to information and data, both internally and externally, uh, that these rules and these tensions began to emerge. And so with respect to your question about California employers, uh, California employers have an obligation, of course, to uh, maintain in the workplace uh, a uh, safe and uh, uh, hostility-free, sexual hostility-free, uh, violence hostility-free uh, workplace. Uh, and as a result of that, they have a, a direct interest in what kind of information is being brought into the workplace, whether it be physically carried in or whether it be through the access uh, to information that might be on a website or that might be uh, in an email as an attachment or what have you. Uh, so employers are very interested 
from that perspective and making sure that they you know, have regulation over what employees are accessing, bringing into spending their time doing uh, during the workday. There's, there's obviously a productivity issue here as well. Uh, employees who are whiling away their time uh, uh, doing Internet searches or, or, or shopping online, for example, aren't necessarily uh, doing their, their employer's business. And, and so as a result of that, there's a productivity issue as well. Um, so those are some of the things that employers have a, a, a concern about with respect to what's in the outside coming in. And now, the flip side of this is what's on the inside at a company that an employer wants to control uh, its, its dissemination. Right. Uh, and this comes up oftentimes when you've got an employee who's planning, for example, to go work for a competitor. Uh, it is now commonplace for most employees to have Internet and email access and have, for example, an Outlook contacts um, list, a very extensive list of client contacts, for example. Uh, those kinds of uh, forms of information are very valuable to a company. Uh, they they are they can be and oftentimes are uh, properly characterized as a customer list, uh, and they don't, as a result of uh, the law that has been developed, uh, belong to an employee. They actually do belong to an employer. Uh, so if you've got contacts that an employee has made during the course of of the workday, during the course of a career, uh, those are contacts, even though they may. Uh, have been developed by and maybe even been brought into the employer by an employee, they actually, as a matter of property, belong to the employer. Uh, and, and the law on that is pretty well established under the Uniform Trade Secrets Act. Um, that having been said, when an employee is considering leaving a place of employment, especially if they're thinking of going to a competitor, oftentimes the first thing they do is download or transfer electronically their contacts list, uh, perhaps to the new employer. Right. Uh, you know, and I've done a lot of work in this area, for example, in the stock brokerage uh, area, where you've got stockbrokers who, you know, from time to time uh, hop from one uh, brokerage house to the other. Uh, they, they live and die based upon their contacts. And so what they will oftentimes do is download the information uh, from brokerage A, where they're currently working, send it over to brokerage B, where they're going to start working on Monday of next week, and then during the weekend, they will solicit those customers uh, of brokerage A to transfer their business to brokerage B. And by the time uh, their former employer finds out about it, uh, oftentimes it's too late uh, to stop it from happening, but then they're having to try to deal with, with, with how to, how to um, uh, get their arms around these clients, some of whom may not want to leave, some of whom may not want to have been contacted, Etc. So there are all kinds of issues, uh, and that's just, I think, uh, that's a, that's a, uh, a few of them that, that come up so, so often in this area. Right, and then you, you think about the ones that, that I hear about, which is when you have an employee who decides that they are not getting enough pay or they want some revenge, and then they sell customer lists to fraudsters. You know, I mean, we have those unscrupulous employees within the organization that also sell things, you know, for for a profit. And oh, we've sure. seen, you know, we've seen that. And then, of course, you've got the people who do things, you know, innocently or but negligently. You know, they they release things that they shouldn't be releasing or they're, or they're sending it somewhere else and, and someone else has access to it. So that's another thing that I would think that the people would be worried about. And then again, the other kinds of intellectual property like trademark stuff or things that patent pending or something that, that would uh, be um, worrisome for an employer. They really do need to know what's going out of their systems and what's being taken and, and how they could be betrayed as an employer, right? I, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of um, ignorance, actually, on this subject. I think most employees you know, have never heard of the Uniform Trade Secrets Act. They don't know what that is. It sounds kind of scary when you, when you, when you hear it from a lawyer, I suppose or when you get it in a letter or a TRO that might be served on you, a temporary restraining order that might be served on you by your former employer. But uh, I think many employees just don't know that contacts that they have made probably do belong to the company where they're currently working, even if they've developed those contacts. The one exception I would say is probably contacts that they, have, they may have brought to 
their current employer. In, in other words, if they <laughs> if they stole the list from their last employer <laughs> and brought it to their current employer, I think the current employer doesn't have a very good argument that it belongs to them as opposed to right. the employee. But in most in most instances, they they happen to be contacts that the employee may have developed during the course of of uh, employment with that first employer or w- with the current employer, rather I should say. Uh, and they don't know that they, they aren't supposed to take those with them. And so when I'm on the other side of this, when I'm actually uh, advising a company that's about to hire an employee or a group of employees, as, as they sometimes uh, come aboard uh, as groups, uh, that's the first thing we talk about is what kind of data or documents they have access to from their current employer and why it's vitally important for them not to bring that with them when they come to the new employer. Um, there are ways to try to recreate the list. There are ways to, you know, do Google searches. There are ways to uh, find from third-party sources contact information. Uh, but if you bring information from the current employer to the new employer, uh, the current employer's got a gotcha, and they're going to be able to go into court. They're going to be able to wave uh, this this list around to the judge, saying, "Gee, this was ours. The Uniform Trade Secrets Act says." Uh, that we are entitled to uh, this uh, this property, this employee has stolen it from us. You know, please please do bad things to that employee, which among other things would include a restraining order. Uh, may in fact put that employee out of business because uh, if 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 the if the violation has been egregious enough, you might be able to get an order prohibiting that employee from even contacting or having any business come to them from any of those those customers, even if the customers want to transfer. Uh, I've gotten that that from time to time. So. Uh, I think this is an area where uh, if a company uh, is about to hire a group of employees or thinks it's about to lose some employees, or if it's just an employee who's thinking of changing jobs from one to the other, they should very seriously consider talking with uh, an attorney who uh, is well-versed in this area because there are a lot of uh, potential pitfalls. And they should probably have really good policies as well so that as soon as you're hired in, you know what the rules are. And if you're thinking of leaving, you know you, that the employer should definitely advise the employees. And when we're talking about uh, what a judge might order and how it might affect your career the rest of your life, for those students here on campus who are going out in the working world, they don't realize that if you have a judgment against you or something that becomes public record, that could get on you know, the internet, that can be seen, and you could ruin your career for the rest of your life. So it's really not worth it to do these things for the short term, because in the long term, it could actually ruin your career. Wouldn't you say that's right. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, in, in this digital age that we find ourselves in, almost everything that finds its way onto the internet stay. <laughs> what goes on the internet stays on the internet. A little bit of a variation of the Las Vegas uh, <laughs> right. slogan, I suppose. Uh, and it's difficult, as as I think those people who've tried to get some of these things off the internet know, uh, it's, it's difficult to get things eradicated. So once it finds its way into Google uh, uh, or onto a website somewhere. It's going to be fair game, and it's going to be something, as you say, that's going to probably stick with you for for a long time to come. I know. When I try and help victims of identity theft and their name, their reputation, or their business, or whatever gets on the Internet, it is is crazy because even if you get it off one website, it's replicated somewhere else. So it is a problem that hopefully we'll, we'll deal with in the future. But let's talk a little bit about this article that I that I uh, saw because I thought it was interesting, and I remember reading about Hernandez versus Hillsides Inc. because that's a, a very interesting case about videotaping in the workplace. So let's first talk about the facts of that case so my, that my audience understands what happened. Sure, it was a very unusual uh, case. Um, it's an opinion from the California Supreme Court. Uh, and it involved uh, an employer that is, is not like most employers. It, it, it was a uh, private nonprofit residential facility uh, for neglected and abused children. And so there were actually children around the workplace uh, uh, because that's what this place was. It was a uh, you know it was a uh, residential facility. Uh, most employers don't have that uh, kind of. Uh, grouping in their in their their workplace, uh, unless it's a school, perhaps, or a daycare center, something like that. So this was much more like a daycare center or a school than the typical employer, and that becomes an important fact. Uh, I think a vital fact as we uh, analyze the case. Um, the second thing that that occurred here that's of of, of note, I think, is that uh, the employer had determined that someone. 
and they didn't know who, was accessing pornographic websites from a particular computer in a particular office. Um, the employer also was relatively certain that the accessing of these pornographic websites was being done after hours at night uh, in this office. And importantly, the two women who ended up being the plaintiffs in the case who filed the lawsuit um, were not suspects. No one suspected that they were actually accessing any pornographic websites. Uh, among other things, they had an alibi because these access, uh, the access of the Internet took place uh, exclusively when they weren't there. They had left for the day already. Uh, so uh, the company, uh, the, the residential facility, did not suspect either of these two women as being uh, the, the culprit here. What the company did was something that uh, then becomes the subject of the lawsuit. In an effort to safeguard this workplace, and again, as I said, there are children about, um, they come upon a plan. And what they decide to do is they put a hidden camera uh, in this office where the two women work during the day. Uh, and it's a shared office. There are other people that, that use the office from time to time, including, of course, after hours. Um, the women uh, put in a lot of evidence in the case about how they had an expectation of privacy with respect to this office because the door did shut, although there, apparently there was a doggy door of some sort. So there's, a, there's a lot of discussion about whether the doggy door does or does not defeat their expectation of privacy. This is what litigation is, has become in the state of California. Um, and, and, and so, but the doggy door, as it turns out, doesn't, doesn't defeat their expectation of privacy. It determines the august California Supreme Court. Is that because uh, doggies don't talk? Yes, exactly. What doggies know, they don't talk about, I suppose. <laughs> Um, and and the women talk about how for occasionally they'll you know they'll they'll change their blouse in, in that office if they've been working out or they're doing other things. So they, in other words, they they do a lot to try to bolster their case that this is a a place a sanctuary from their perspective where they don't expect anybody to be looking in on them. Uh, the California Supreme Court actually concludes that they did have an expectation of privacy in this office, uh, and that's an important ruling. That's the first important ruling from the case. Uh, that is that. This, although it was semi-private, it wasn't you know a private office where they could shut the door and nobody could ever come in, and they own, they exclusively occupy the office and so on, which would uh, most likely be viewed to be a private space. Um, it, it was a semi-private office, and the court said that it was fairly clear that these these women had an expectation of privacy, and that's and you'll hear me say that quite a bit during the show today. Uh, a reasonable expectation of privacy. That's what the courts are looking to find out, whether or not an individual in a particular situation had a reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, court concluded that these two women did. Um, so, so far, so good for the plaintiffs in the case. Uh, what happened in, in sort of Laurel and Hardy style, I suppose, at some point or another, <laughs> the, the women came upon this hidden camera in, in the... Uh, in the office, I guess that's anachronistic to say Laurel and Hardy, but in any event, they they do discover the uh, they do discover the hidden camera and are appalled by uh, the existence of a hidden camera, and they uh, not not surprisingly raise a ruckus and and want to know why there's this hidden camera in their private office. So then the whole thing comes out, and it turns out that the management of this employer was was concerned that if they let these women or anyone else know about the hidden camera, then whoever the real culprit was, because remember they didn't know who the bad person was, right. uh, would find out through gossip uh, and, and therefore would no longer go into the office and access the pornographic websites and they'd never be able to catch the bad guy. Uh, so they didn't want to blow the trap. They wanted to be able to uh, keep it completely quiet so that whoever it was that was using uh, this this office for these these deeds uh, would be caught uh, again something that's usually not present in most most workplaces most workplaces involve situations where uh, the company's just trying to prevent bad activity they're not trying to find uh, you know they're not they're not playing Columbo they're not trying to find the bad guy they're just simply trying to prevent anybody from doing anything bad here they were actually on uh, a mission they were actually trying to find out who it was and that again is a somewhat unusual situation so uh, the, the, the company said that that's why they didn't tell these women about it. The other thing the company said was, oh, by the way, we have never actually turned on the camera during the day while you're here in the office. 
the reason is because we don't suspect either of you of doing this, so we would have no reason to turn on the camera. Right, and and the evidence that they had was it always happened after hours. Correct. Yeah. And and the women, I think, testified, and again, there was a little bit of a, I think there was a little bit of a question on this. They said that there was a blinking red light on, so they inferred, of course, that maybe the camera actually was on, but in any event, the, the Supreme Court believed the employer uh, in this situation and determined that there there really wasn't enough evidence to to, to refute the employer's story, which was that it was not being monitored, it was not being run, it was not being used or recorded in any way during the time that the women occupied the office. Mm-hmm. So um, the, uh, they, they filed a, a lawsuit claiming invasion of their right to privacy. The trial court uh, threw their lawsuit out and said that, that they didn't really have an expectation of privacy and that this was not a violation. Uh, that gets to the Court of Appeal, the intermediate court here in California, and that got reversed. The dismissal was reversed, and the Court of Appeal said uh, they did have an expectation of privacy, and uh, this was inexcusable for the employer to have done what it did in these circumstances, uh, and that it didn't matter if the employer didn't view or turn on the camera. The fact of the matter was that if the camera was there, uh, it, it still violated their right. To privacy. So this was a little bit of an unusual ruling from an employer standpoint, because the view was that, well, gosh, it's kind of like a tree falling in the forest. If, you know, <laughs> if the camera's never used, but it happens to be in their office, how is that an invasion of their privacy? Uh, right. But the Court of Appeal thought that it was. Uh, and it was that, that piece of the Court of Appeal opinion that got reversed by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court basically reinstated the dismissal that had been granted by the trial court. And, and what the Supreme Court said was, yes, they did have an expectation of privacy uh, in this particular office, but there were countervailing forces. And, and we, we see this a lot in, in privacy litigation, um, indeed any, any litigation involving constitutional rights. Oftentimes, a court or a judge will do a balancing. They're not, they're, they're not, they're not usually absolute rights. And so what the court did is they did an informal balancing here, and they said, yes, these women did have a privacy right, but by the same token, the employer had important rights that had to be vindicated here as well. The employer was not um, just for its own uh, folly looking to record its employees. Uh, there was no nefarious intent. Indeed, what the employer was trying to do was protect the, the children that were present in this workplace. They were trying to find somebody who was accessing pornographic websites, and indeed, you know, they would probably have been second-guessed if they hadn't done everything they possibly could do to ferret out whoever the wrongdoer was here. Uh, And then the Supreme Court also said the fact that the camera was never used, the fact that there was no evidence that these employees were actually surreptitiously recorded in any way, also uh, went into the column for the employer. Uh, And so at the end of the day, the Supreme Court determined that there was no... um, right for them to proceed with their lawsuit. In other words, they had a right to privacy, but notwithstanding that, the, the employer's reasons for invading that privacy were good enough such that they didn't have uh, a claim, and the court affirmed dismissal of, of, the, of, the, of the case. I have a question. Um, was there ever a question of whether it was ch- there was child pornography? Do I don't know? believe okay. there was. Okay. Because uh, then you I, I could get law enforcement. I, and yeah. I think that's a relevant question to ask. But um, at the end of the day, it probably doesn't make that much difference because I think there there was a view by the court that even if it had not been child pornography and just regular pornography, it's probably something that they don't want their you know they don't want one of their staff members to be right. accessing while having easy access to the children. Well, I was just thinking if it was child pornography, it would be criminal law as well. And exactly. so, That's and, a good point. And, and then, because I've been involved in when there's been identity theft in a workplace and um, there's been surveillance on computers, but there was good reason because there was a criminal investigation and the criminal investigation was really requested by law enforcement and that puts a whole different slant on it, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that, that would make it even more compelling uh, for the employer in the in this situation, although one would have thought that if it if it were that serious, that the employer would have gotten the police or the FBI. Right, them. right. That's why I just asked that yeah. because I didn't know if they were trying to be their own sleuth or you know because sometimes law enforcement does get involved and then if law enforcement says hey we need to have this undercover so we can do a sting 
you know, it's it's entirely different, you know, right. than, than the, uh, but th- that has happened in cases that I've worked on with finding the identity thieves within corporations. So um, it's just kind of an interesting thing. So, so what is the present state of the law? What have we learned from this and what's changed, if anything, after this case? Well, uh, a couple of things. One thing that we didn't mention yet, and I think really should be, should be mentioned is that there already is a law in the state of California in the labor code, uh, section 435 of the California Labor Code, that prohibits an employer from audio or video recording certain areas in the workplace. And they include an employee restroom, locker room, changing room, uh, or similar kinds of uh, places. That is, places where employees unquestionably have expectation have an expectation of privacy, uh, and that's, that's um, uh, uh, an infraction under the law. I believe it's a misdemeanor under right. California law. Uh, yeah, under Section 433 of the Labor Code, that violation of Section 435 is made a misdemeanor. So that's a criminal matter. If an employer video or audio tapes um, an employee restroom, locker room, or changing room. And I think that's probably why, in this case, for example, the, the women were trying to sort of establish how they were kind of using this as a change room. in that yeah, way, yeah, yeah. They said, for yeah. example, that they they replaced work clothes with athletic wear before they went to go exercise at the end of the day. There was also uh, apparently some testimony that that one of the women raised her shirt to show the other woman her quote post pregnancy figure. <laughs> uh, so, so there, like I said, there was all kinds of um, uh, 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 testimony about these kinds of issues. And I think probably what they were trying to do is, is make it look like this office was almost like a locker room in some respects, uh, or at least had some attributes of a locker room. But the law is clear that when you do have those places, and not, obviously not all workplaces have locker rooms, but uh, all workplaces for the most part have restrooms, um, uh, and, and it would be illegal for an employer under Section 435 of the Labor Code to audio or videotape in that area. So that's the absolute minimum uh, protection that employees have. And then you go beyond that to this case, I think, which is now the state of, of, the, of the law on the subject, which is that not just in those places, however, uh, may an employer not videotape. I think that this case would have come out differently, um, and I think the employees probably would have prevailed if there had been uh, just one fact changed uh, in, the, in the ones that I've described to you, and, and it could have been any of those facts. One way it could have been different is if this workplace did not include uh, children anywhere in the workplace. That is, if it were a situation where the employer thought there was some pilfering going on and they were just trying to protect their property rights, uh, and as a result of that, they set up this hidden camera to find out who was stealing post-its at the end of the night. Right, right. Uh, I think under those circumstances, probably, I mean, I'm speculation on my part, but I think probably uh, the court would have been more influenced in favor of the women under those circumstances. Cause right, because the balancing act, like you were precisely. talking about it, you know, the public policy reasons wouldn't be there as strong. Precisely. Um, and I think also if there had been some evidence that this camera, notwithstanding the blinking red light, <laughs> yeah. actually was running, recording, uh, being viewed by somebody uh, in, in the security department or in the human resources department, wherever it may have been, uh, during the workday when these women were there. Now, so I they, think if either ever... of those two facts had changed, or certainly if both had, I think the employees would have won and the employer probably would have lost. Now, in Discovery, did they ever get any of these tapes to see when... What was being taped? Yeah, I think they, they obviously tried to get all that stuff. I, my sense from the appellate court opinions, though, was that uh, that it was not determin- determined. Uh, that is, that the, there was no evidence to the contrary, which was that there was nothing but uh, blank tapes from from the time in which, I guess there was just no, no tape at all during the work work day, uh, and the only tapes that did exist were after hours. And by the way, the, the, the net result of this investigation was inconclusive. They never did they never find got out the... who it was. <laughs> because the woman found the blinking light first? I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe you're, maybe, yeah, you're right. Maybe the, maybe the cover was blown so early because they were that so uh, appalled. the bad guy wasn't caught. <laughs> but, uh, but they never were able to actually find out who it was that was uh, accessing these, these websites. Wow. I think it only. I think they had only done it a handful of times. In any event, I don't think it. Had, I don't think it was like a six-month long investigation or anything like that. Right, right. They should have hired a private detective to to hide the 
the blinking light better or something yeah, like that. Yeah, perhaps, or maybe uh, gotten fingerprints or something. Who knows? I don't know. Exactly. Well, I just want to introduce you again as people are driving by. We are speaking with a wonderful attorney. You can hear him uh, very articulate. He is a privacy expert and an employment expert. We're speaking with Tony Ansidi, who is a partner in the law firm of Proskauer Rose LLP in Los Angeles, and he's the chair of the Labor and Employment Department in the Los Angeles office, and he is co-author of Proskauer on Privacy, which was published in 2009. So we are speaking with an absolute wonderful expert. So let's talk about what rights the the employee and employer has with regard to voicemail. Like we were talking about audio recording. You can't audio record in a bathroom or in a locker room or someplace where there is an established uh, reasonable expectation of privacy. What about using the phones and voicemail? What what rights do employees versus employers have on that? Well, that that shifts the equation. I think when you're dealing with um, employer provided telecommunication systems, and this could be cell phones, for example, uh, it can be uh, internet, it can be email, texting, for example, voicemail systems although nobody really uses voicemail anymore, but uh, uh, all of those things are employer-provided telecommunications or communications, electronic communications equipment. And the law, even in California, which, which as you know, tends to be fairly pro-employee, uh, is clear. And that is, for the most part, an employer has uh, relatively unfettered access to uh, all and any information that may be stored on or accessed uh, through uh, the employer-provided equipment. Uh, that having been said, what what most employers are are advised to do by good counsel, and certainly we tell our our clients to do this, is to promulgate a an express policy on this subject. That is that you uh, are uh, prohibited uh, from using the internet, uh, email, uh, texting, etc for anything other than work-related purposes. Now, all of us who work in uh, office environments know that everybody uses some email and some voicemail and, and probably some, some texting and so on for non-business-related purposes. By the way, my personal theory on that is that that has become much less of a problem since there's become widespread high-speed Internet access. There was a period of time, you may remember, about, I would say, about eight years ago, six years ago, where there was a, a large gap between what employees had access to at home versus what they had access to in the workplace. Right. And almost all workplaces had T1 lines or what, what have you where they were able to get high-speed Internet access to their users, and very few employees uh, had, those, uh, had access to those kinds of uh, technologies at home. And as a result, I think, there was probably a lot more use of that a kind of uh, equipment at work than we now see, because now it's no longer as much of a novelty. In fact, everybody's got a cell phone for the most part through which they can gain Internet access. Everybody's got high-speed Internet access at home for the most part. So we're not dealing with dial-up on the one hand versus high-speed Internet in the workplace. So I think that's actually tamped down the problem significantly because in the old days, and I'm, again, talking six years ago, uh, <laughs> very few people had that high-speed Internet access, or at least they couldn't get it affordably at home. And so they would, <laughs> they would do a lot more on the computers that they would have access to at work than they, they may, may do so now. So I think that's one thing that's, that's actually kind of solved many of the problems that we were seeing for a while. But uh, we, we do advise clients uh, to uh, promulgate a policy that expressly states that uh, there is no expectation of privacy that an employee can or should have in, in connection with the use of computers or telecommunication equipment, any electronic equipment. Uh, and it's that belongs very, to the employer, right? Exactly. And it's very important for the employer to tell that to employees and indeed preferably have the employees sign an acknowledgement that they received and understood the policy. And here's why. As I mentioned at the beginning, the, the key to almost all of these questions is whether there's an expectation of privacy. And, right. and in fact, the easiest um, antidote to an expectation of privacy is for someone to tell you, hey, guess what? You don't have any privacy in connection with what you're about to do. So you're on notice. You're on notice. And that is, therefore, the way in which an employer, indeed anybody, can defeat another person's expectation of privacy. I mean, you think about it, you think about the old... Uh, 
the old movies and indeed maybe some people's experiences when they were in college where they would put a sock or something on the door uh, so that their roommate wouldn't come in because they had right. company that night. <laughs> that's the They're, expectation of privacy. That's the expectation of privacy. <laughs> right. Now, if you don't put the sock there and your roommate walks in, you're going to say, hey, I didn't know you were, you know, were engaged in other activities here. <laughs> you, didn't, you don't have any reasonable expectation of privacy because you didn't put me on notice uh, of anything awry. So this is really right. sort of a high-tech answer to the sock on the door. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Now, what about this one? What if someone uses their Gmail account? What kind of expectation of privacy is there? That's a very good question. You know, it does come up from time to time, and there have been just a smattering of opinions. I don't believe there is anything in California on this yet, uh, because uh, what happens is, and this is is, uh, quite prevalent, uh, employers tell employees, you know, don't, don't use your email uh, and don't use your internet access here for private matters. So what employees inevitably do is they will access web-based email accounts such as Gmail or Hotmail or what have you, and uh, they will access that through the employer's computers. Um, There are a couple of things that that then happen. Um, Number one, an employer uh, can... uh, prohibit uh, the use of that, uh, and, and the real question, I guess, is whether the employer has, has the right to access it. The way that an employer, the only way, really, that an employer could access it is if the employee has the password that that employee uses, rem- to be, has it remembered by the system. You know, the system gives you the, right. the opportunity to re- remember the password. Which I you think, should never I don't know do. The, I don't know if the case law has caught up with this yet, but I believe that if an employee checks that box and says, yes, remember my password when accessing web-based email, I think that's a waiver of their right to privacy. Yeah, I think they should never do that anyway, even at home. You're right. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. And, and, and if an employee wants to safeguard their uh, privacy uh, by accessing uh, web-based Internet uh, email, uh, they should never check that box because I've had situations where an employee has left, and you know one of the first things we do certainly if litigation is threatened or does exist with a former employee, the first thing we do as an employer's lawyer, and I can tell you, this is what we do all the time, is we go through all the emails they sent, all the emails they received, importantly all the emails they thought they had deleted, right. so that we have basically a diary, a minute by minute diary of that employee's activities over the last thirty, sixty, ninety, six months, whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, as you know, most of this is backed up, as you said at the beginning of the program. Most of this stuff is recorded in two, three, four different places, so it's almost never, it's almost indelible. Uh, so we almost always get that, and um, it has not been uh, an unusual situation for us to then uncover through looking at internet uh, activity the fact the person has a, a web-based email system. And then the question is, can we look at it? And I always ask the question, well. Does, did the system uh, remember the password because the employee checked that box? Right. And, and what from my they... perspective, and again, I, I, would, I would probably the next time this comes up, I'd want to look to see what the newest cases say about this because this is a very much cutting edge. I would want to look to see if, that, if, if the courts have caught up with my analysis, which is that I think if you check that box, you waive your right to privacy. If you don't check the box, then the employer probably can't get access to it anyway, and uh, then it becomes a moot point. And the other thing for those businesses that are driving by, have a very good policy, like we were just talking about. Tony talks about having an important, you know, a very explicit policy saying what is, where is there a reasonable expectation of privacy, and where is there not. I know I deal with clients all the time who write me on their email from work, and I tell them, don't ever do that again. You know, even if it's something that has nothing to do with work at all, I tell them never give me anything confidential in an email to begin with and never use your business email ever. I think there's another question. What if the company gives you a BlackBerry and now it's the the BlackBerry belongs to the company, right? Yes. And now you have your uh, email from work on there. I guess it's almost the same thing as the computer. You're, even though it's your BlackBerry that you're assigned you have to give it back if you leave, right? Correct. So it's the same issue, but can't you get email from, you know, if you have your BlackBerry on the weekend, you know, um, make 
what's the issue there? I mean, that's the same kind of issue if somebody yeah, gets your BlackBerry back. Well, again, you know, all roads lead to the policy. The policy should be explicit about this. And by the way, employers need to update their policies because, you know, some of these policies were written before people had widespread BlackBerry use. Uh, so, and, and texting's another issue. You know, that texting is really come into its own, at least here in the United States, the last four or five years. I mean, the, and a lot the of Europeans comp- have been doing it for 10 or 15 years, but we've only been doing it for four or five here. Exactly. The texting is at well is important, too. And, you know, I know one of my friends who works for uh, Chipotle, they just issued them all iPhones. Okay? <laughs> they Every one of the top executives got iPhones. And, uh-huh. you know, they're loving it. And I said, well, just what are you going to do? You're going to use that iPhone? What kind of information are you going to put on that iPhone that, that if it belongs to the company? I think that's another huge issue that the policy has to be clear. It does. And most most policies that are, are, are well written, uh, you know, as we would certainly advocate that they be, are going to deal with uh, that. And they're going to say that that's employer-provided uh, uh, hardware and, and that the employee does not have a right to privacy in connection with that, uh, that equipment. And therefore, uh, anything that's done with the use of that equipment belongs to the employer. There was a case in California that came out a few years ago involving a laptop where, uh, ironically, the guy in the case was terminated from the company. Uh, it was an insurance brokerage company, I believe. Uh, he was terminated because he was, again, accessing pornography. It's amazing how often pornography is at the heart of these cases, I must tell you. Um, and, and that was no exception in this particular case. This guy was accessing pornography from his, uh, his desktop at work, and so they found out about it, and they terminated him. Uh, it turned out that he also had a company-supplied laptop at his home. Uh, and, uh, and it actually may have even been a, a desktop, but in any event, it was either a desktop or a laptop that was company-supplied, but he kept it at his house. And as part of the discovery process in the lawsuit, of course, the company said, give us that computer because, A, it belongs to us, and, B, we want to know what you were doing with it because you signed a policy that said that no matter where you access this information, as long as you're using our equipment, we have a right to see what you were doing. And uh, not surprisingly, he didn't want to turn it over. Mm. And his lawyers, you know, they amounted a privacy defense. Basically, they said, oh, well, he's got uh, confidential tax returns on there. And, you know, we know probably what else was probably there. (laughs) If he had it at work, I would guess that he probably had it at home as well. Why didn't he clone the thing and then just destroy the hard drive? He should have talked to you. (laughs) Um, So there's this big fight about uh, there's this big fight about whether he has to turn over the computer that he's got at home. And the court ultimately ruled in the employer's favor and said that even though this employee had this thing at home and he had a much greater, from his perspective at least, expectation of privacy, that expectation of privacy was sufficiently defeated by the policy that he had signed, which said that everybody uh, who uses company equipment wherever they may use it forfeits their right to privacy. There's also a really important case that came out about a year ago you probably heard about involving the city of Ontario. Um, they, uh, they had issued um, uh, cell phones to their, uh, their police force, and um, there was a sergeant uh, who was a member of the city of Ontario Police Department who was using his cell phone to text. And again, he was texting things that were uh, considered to be inappropriate. They, they were sexually explicit and some other things that were just not appropriate from the, right. from the city's point of view. And the whole fight in this case uh, was whether or not he had an expectation of privacy in sending those text messages. And this was an example of a, a case where an employer actually had a pretty good policy that specifically said that you don't have an expectation of privacy. But what the employee was able to do was to show that although they had a policy in writing that was perfectly fine, um, he had been told, he said, by um, I believe it was one of the lieutenants or somebody above him in the, in the police department, that... Um, he didn't have to worry about the policy so long as he kept the amount of texting that he was doing down to, I think it was less than 25,000 characters in a particular billing cycle. So it would cost them less, right? Exactly. It was a cost issue. And they said, as long as you keep it below 25,000 characters per month, we won't look and it won't be a problem because we just don't want to have the expense. So that defeated the whole policy. That's what <laughs> happened. Exactly right. And this goes to the Ninth Circuit, and they determined that, in fact, he did have an expectation of privacy. Even though there was a policy that said one thing, there was a practice right. that was entirely different. And I think many employers may fall victim to that as well. 
I, I think that's such an important issue because I've just been talking about this with other employers with regard to pr- other privacy issues. If you have a policy, you must enforce that policy because if you don't and you have a pattern of just disregarding it, that's what's going to hold up in court, right? Exactly. And, that's, and this is a perfect example of just that. We are speaking with a wonderful privacy and employment attorney, Anthony Unsidi, who is a partner in the law firm of Proskauer Rose LLP, and he's chair of the Labor and Employment Department in that Los Angeles office. And he's also co-author of Proskauer on Privacy, which was published in 2009. So let's switch gears. We Gosh, we don't have a lot of time, but let's switch gears about the issue of drug testing and alcohol testing of employees. What's the current state of the law and rules about that? Sure. Uh, and this comes up quite uh, frequently as well. Interestingly, there is a bright line test uh, that is applied by the courts in the state of California on this issue. And that is that uh, employees have much greater privacy rights when it comes to drug and alcohol testing than do applicants. Uh, And although that may not be immediately apparent, uh, the reasoning actually makes some sense, and it is as follows. An applicant has a choice as to whether or not uh, he or she will apply to be an employee at any given workplace. So if you are going to go apply at a company down the street and uh, you find out that before you can go work there, they're going to make you uh, uh, produce some urine in a cup so they can test it, you can decide you don't want to apply there because for whatever reason you don't want to have uh, the results of that test uh, either positive or negative. You just don't want the results of that test to be known by anybody. So an applicant has the right to just simply go to the next employer. Now, many employers do this anyway, so I'm not sure how many options you might have. But in any event, uh, the, the reasoning goes that an applicant is much freer to simply walk away. An employee, on the other hand, when presented with the option of either submitting to a drug test or losing his or her job um, doesn't have as many options. And so the court, I think, fairly realistically recognizes that employees are stuck in a way uh, when they're asked to submit to a drug test. So the rule is as follows. Applicants basically can be tested uh, any old time. Any time an employer before the employee has been been, uh, uh, hired, uh, can be given uh, a drug test, and uh, if they flunk, the employee obviously uh, the employer can do what it wants with those results, but oftentimes chooses not to hire uh, that employee. Um, an employee, on the other hand, sorry, chooses not to hire that applicant. An employee, on the other hand, uh, can only be tested for drug or alcohol use under very uh, limited circumstances, and they are as follows: if the employee has a safety sensitive position, that is. If the employee is driving a forklift uh, or the employee is flying a plane or doing something uh, that is very safety sensitive and it involves the safety of that employee and others, and that doesn't mean just wielding a stapler (laughs) in a white-collar environment, uh, then the employer uh, can test uh, pretty uh, much any time it wants to. It can do random testing uh, if it chooses to do so. If the employee is not in a safety-sensitive position, which is, of course, most people certainly in a white-collar environment, um, then the employer can only do drug or alcohol testing if it has a reasonable suspicion that the employee is under the influence. Uh-huh. And, and, and that's very much like a test you know, that a court would apply for a police officer in determining whether there's probable cause to arrest. That is... Gee, eyes were dilated, uh, knocked something over, slurred, slurred speech, speech, fell yeah. asleep at his desk. Right. Those are the kind of things an employer would be, have to be able to say, well, this is why we believe this person was under the influence, and this is why we mandated that they get tested uh, on this day and in this place. But if it's, if, it's, if it's just a random test of a current employee who's not in a safety-sensitive position, then there's a problem for an employer. It's an invasion of privacy uh, issue uh, that would arise. And, you know, that goes back to those of you who are driving by who are business owners, who are in business, who are managers. Again, have a policy that everybody understands up front so that people know, hey, if I come in and I'm slurred speech and I've had a hard night last night and I still have drugs in me, you know, I am, I'm going to subject myself to possible drug testing. Correct. So people need to know that. 
We don't have a lot of time, but you know, here we are sitting on the campus of the University of California, and we have many people that are going to be going out into the working world. This is a very good university. And I worry about what they put up on the on their social networking sites. Can you tell us a little bit about the ability of a, a potential employers to, to really look at the social networking sites? What kind of rulings do we have? Do we have anything out there right now on that? Sure, it's, it, it is a little bit the, uh, a little bit of the wild wild west at the current time. Um, again, this is a case in which technology, I think, has gotten ahead of the law in, in some respects. Uh, you know, there there are fairly well established rules with respect to credit reporting uh, right. that uh, is regulated quite quite carefully and, and strictly by the federal government and the state government. There's something on the federal level called the uh, uh, Fair Credit Reporting Act. Uh, and Even for background checks in California, correct. yeah. And, and there's something on, on the California level as well, the uh, California equivalent. Um, and in essence, what those require is that an employer get a a the consent of the employee before it does the background check, uh, and b if it makes an adverse employment decision based upon information that is uncovered during that background check, that it disclose to the employee that it did. In other words, you can't just say, "Oh, gee, we changed our mind." You have to say, "We changed our mind about hiring you because of something that was in your credit report." Uh, and, and the reason for that is, again, a very logical one, which is you could have cases of mistaken identity. I mean, I've got a fairly unique name, uh, but not everybody does. And if you're Joe Jones, it may turn out that you're the different Joe Jones than the one the employer got a credit report on. And, and if you never know that you were, <laughs> you were turned down for employment based on something that wasn't you but was your cousin or somebody you've never even heard of, uh, that's obviously not fair. So, an and especially if, it, yeah, especially if you're a victim of identity theft, which, which I've ha- had to help a lot of victims, even who had criminal records that really weren't their own. Sure, so, and so they you're may right. not even know about it until exactly. someone actually goes about doing a, a credit. So that, that's absolutely logical, and I think, and, and again, many employers are out of compliance. So those uh, those employers and business owners that are listening to this should should be very careful about this because you can get credit reports. On the internet, you can get them through, uh, you know, somewhat shady organizations sometimes that aren't really up to speed on the rules on this. And if they don't uh, give the proper notice to the employees as to what you're actually, you know, going to be doing, uh, that is, that you're going to be doing the, re- the credit report, and that if you make an adverse decision, that the employee should be uh, properly notified of that. So this is a very strictly regulated area. Employers can't afford to be wrong when it comes to these kinds of decisions. Now, you asked the question about, you know, what about Facebook? What about social networking sites? Because um, i got to tell you, Tony, I mean, I've talked to friends who are attorneys in big firms who say that they actually look at these social networking sites before they hire attorneys. And right. I had one that even told me on the air that they decided after they were going to hire a new associate that they decided not to hire her after what they saw on the Internet. That's right. And and there are all kinds of cases that, that we're hearing about. Uh, and, and as far as I know, there's no regulation yet, and, and, and I haven't looked at this in a little bit, and these things, as you know, are changing very quickly. But I don't believe there are any FTC regs on the federal level or, or certainly on the state level yet that deal with that. So even though it's strictly regulated as to what you do on a background check, I don't believe there's anything that specifically prohibits an employer without the employee's consent from going to Facebook or going to some other social networking site and doing sort of an informal background uh, check on employees. And, and we all know that there are many, many instances of, of, uh, this, of this coming up. I mean, some of them are fairly humorous. I mean, there's one I, I heard about. There's an employee, I think, somewhere on the East Coast where he called in sick and said he couldn't come to work the next day and that he was you know, unable to, to come in because he just wasn't feeling well. And uh, somebody at the, at the workplace had uh, checked his Facebook and saw that he had been at a party the night before <laughs> dressed as Tinkerbell with this little <laughs> right. wand. And so his, his boss wrote back, understand you can't come in today, sorry to hear about that, and then put in parentheses, by the way, cool wand. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I don't know how the employee responded to that. I, and I don't know if he lost his job as a result, but it was certainly embarrassing to say the least. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, here we are on the campus, and we have students who, who really aren't, you know, they're out there having fun, and they put up cool things. And I don't think they really are aware of the ramifications of how this can follow them and really ruin their career. I mean, they might be in law school or something and wanting to get a, a you know, a, a great, associate job and they might be ruining it for themselves so what is your suggestion 
My suggestion would be to be very careful in terms of what you put up. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Facebook, which I, I think has, I don't use Facebook, although I think I'm listed on it uh, somewhere. Uh, I think that's got your real name on it, so I don't think you can have an alias there. I think you have to actually use your real name. Uh, so it's not hard to find any information about you. So I think people have got to be very, very careful about uh, what they put up there. And, and you're right, they, 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 these kinds of social networking sites have... Uh, have ramifications, and I, I think to some extent it's a generational thing. Uh, having just received my AARP uh, membership packet, I can tell <laughs> like you that I'm, I feel, I'm feeling this issue quite uh, closely these days. But uh, in any event, the um, the uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, I think people in younger generations tend to be more open about a lot of these uh, things, and they put everything on their on their websites, and everybody knows everything about everyone. Uh, and that all is fine in a social setting, but you know, in a more formal business environment, uh, there could be ramifications that, that aren't anticipated, and uh, I think people may not want them. Oh, gosh. Well, you know what? We are out of time, Tony. You are just wonderful. We appreciate your coming on, and we'll have to have you back on again because this law is changing all the time, and I know you're going to have lots of new stuff to talk about with us. So we thank you for joining us, and we will send people to your website at proscour.com. Thank you. Thanks, Mari. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every week from 8 to 9 a.m. on Monday mornings and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews. Please write us emails about what's worrisome for you in the information age. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.